Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Cal Amir. Before we get to Cal, here's a few announcements. Our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com, and there you'll find photos of our guests. You can find some stories that they've written, some stories that I've written. You can find links to their social media. You can find links to our social media, and that is, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter, or X. I keep saying Twitter. I think we all say Twitter. We have a Facebook page. We have a YouTube page. Subscribe to all those things. It costs you nothing, and it helps us. And if you uh, listen to us on any streaming service, as most of you do, I ask you to please give us a good rating, because that helps more people find the show by boosting our presence there, and that's a cool thing for you to do. So if you can do that, I'd appreciate it. If you think you'd be right for the show, maybe you know somebody who'd be right for the show, or maybe you want to write me, ask some travel questions, ask any questions, or just say nice things. You can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Okay, Calamir, this is a guy that uh, just a fortuitous meeting. He didn't reach out to me on email. He didn't, uh, he didn't call me up. He wasn't a referral from a friend. I happened to be at a friend's party. Uh, former guest of the show, Laura Greer, uh, my friend, the uh, photographer, was having one of her uh, Taco Tuesday sunset parties over in Marina del Rey. And we're on the rooftop by the taco table. And I met this guy, Cal, who tells me that he is just returned from Bali, where he's been living off and on for the last few years, which was crazy to me because I had just spent five minutes talking to a, a woman who had recently moved back from Bali. <laughs> and it was just like, what are the odds that two people I just met both were coming from Bali. They didn't know each other. I introduced them, and of course, they spent the next hour talking, but uh, it was weird. It's amazing how travel can uh, bring people together. Anyway, I gave Cal my card because I figured he would be a great guest for the Travel Tales podcast, and he is. He lives part of the year in Los Angeles. He lives part of the year in New York and part of the year in Bali, and it spends, uh, you know, another part of the year traveling like through Europe and other places. It's a pretty good-sounding life, isn't it? So we talk about Bali a lot, and uh, he'll give you more details during this conversation. It was a pleasure to meet him. I enjoyed talking to him, and I think you'll enjoy listening. Here's my chat with Cal Amir. Cal Amir, so I'm going to guess... Um, not Italian. Not Italian. <laughs> Where's the Amir from? I'm actually Persian. Yeah. Okay. I knew I was in. I knew that was the region, but I didn't know exactly exactly where. Uh, yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Delaware, a couple hours south of New York City, and um, it was kind of always a childhood dream of mine to make it to New York and work on Wall Street and make money and become successful. <laughs> and so that was kind of my my goal in high school and in college. And Congratulations. You're officially the second person I've ever known uh, who who's from Delaware. Oh, nice. Yeah. There's not many of us. No. And, and 
we don't all know each other. Uh, it seems <laughs> like we do, but we, we don't all know each other. It's so weird. You know, I dated a girl like 15 years ago from Delaware. And I got I got to admit, you're the only person I know from Delaware. It was like you and I think Valerie Bertinelli maybe is from there. Yeah. And maybe someone else. Biden, I guess, <laughs> would be the last one. Right. Um, so you went up to New York. You're a Wall Street guy. And uh, it worked out, right? I mean, you made some money, right? Yeah. So actually, I I got really lucky and I, I landed a job as a leveraged buyouts investment banker working on multi-million and billion dollar transactions. And it was always, like I said, a childhood dream of mine to get this job. And in my kind of naive college brain, I'm like, oh, once I go and start making money and start working on these big deals and I'm in the middle of all the action, then life becomes easy and there's nothing to worry about anymore. And kind of this whole new world opens up to where you don't really need to think about the difficulties of life anymore. And so I went and I started this job and, you know, you average about 80 to 90 hours a week and you're really in a super high pressure situation. It's probably uh, the most demanding job coming out of school where, you know, you're working on a team and there's a time crunch and, you know, you literally go into the office and you don't know when you're going to leave that day. And so I would make uh, dinner plans with friends and they'd say, Cal, let's go to dinner on Thursday. And I'd be like, okay, great. I'm not exactly sure if I can make it, but sure, pencil me in for then. And then obviously <laughs> I'd inevitably really end up working later or, or whatever. And there's also times where there was one day where I came into the office and right around lunch, the assistant came over and she's like, Hey, you're going to, you're going to be in Atlanta today at 5 PM. So go home and pack your bag. We have a flight for you. And I was like, so I ended up in Atlanta that night. It's just the nature of the job. Well, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so then I did that for a few years. And after I started making some money, it kind of dawned on me that nothing really changed. You know, I was still the same person. I still had the same, you know, haircut. Nothing changed. And I had money and it didn't really even change me. I didn't even feel like going to go buy anything. I didn't need anything. I might've bought some small things here and there, but I also started having conversations with some of my bosses and some of my colleagues there. And I realized that, you know, this glamorous life that I've been chasing, that I've been trying to get to actually doesn't really exist. (laughs) And a lot of it is kind of just this facade that, you know, people are playing and then they're playing this character of like, yeah, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. But really behind the scenes, they're broken inside or they don't know what they're doing and they're constantly questioning themselves and they're unhappy. And so once I got there and I started experiencing it myself, I was like, wait a second, like, what is going on here? I thought, you know, everything would be amazing and, you know, all the stuff, but nothing, nothing changed. And so uh, that's when I made the decision, like, hey, there's got to be more to life than this. I can't just keep doing this my whole life. I like could see in my whole path, you know, going through the ranks and, you know, moving on to private equity or some other thing. And I saw those guys and I'm like, they're not even really that, that happy. They're not really, they don't seem very fulfilled. And so it was actually a very serendipitous dinner that I had that really cemented this. I remember very vividly, I went to dinner with a friend of mine from Miami and her father at the time was a criminal defense attorney, partner level, making a ton of money. And we went out to dinner one night and I remember we were sitting there eating and I turned to him and I was like maybe second year investment banker at that point. And his name was Mr. Brown. I said, Mr. Brown, do you have any words of advice for someone starting out in a similarly demanding career field as yourself? Like, what would you do different? 
And I'll never forget this. He kind of looked at me and he's like, you know, Cal. And just as he said that, he kind of leaned back in his chair a little bit. And right when he leaned back, the waiter came over and was shaving truffle into his pasta. And this, this scene just got locked into my head. I don't know why, but it's just burned into my memory. And he's like, you know, if I could do it all over again, Cal, I would take a year off in my 20s and travel around the world. And my reaction was like, what? What? That's not career advice. Like, why would you do that? You'd fall a year behind everybody and you'd be a year out of the market. And then he said two things that were really valuable. He said, Cal, at my level, whether you have 25 years of work experience or 24 years, it doesn't really matter. Then he said, look, if you're good, you'll make it to the top. And if you're not good, you're not going to make it. An extra year of work isn't going to determine that. And I kind of sat with this and I was like, okay, that makes sense. But I was like, nah, this guy, I don't, I don't know. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. So I kind of threw it in the back of my head. And then as the years went by, this conversation kept coming up for me. And I was like, you know what? There's got to be more to life than this. And so I made the decision a year and a half before I actually left that I was going to leave. And it was mainly to give my mom a year and a half cushion to let her know that her baby's going to leave this dream job to go travel around the world for a year. And when I made this decision, it was 2006 and I actually left in 2008. So back then it wasn't as common as it is today to leave for a sabbatical or go travel. Uh, e Pray Love only came out, you know, a few years before that. So it wasn't in the culture really to go travel. So it was a little bit risky. Can I but just say, sure. can I just say though, if you were leaving in 2006, 2007, and you left in 2008, you talk about great timing. I mean, there was a lot of guys who left after 2008 because they didn't have a choice. <laughs> you got yeah. out at a perfect time. Way to go. Kudos on that, my friend. Thank you so much. I would love to take credit <laughs> for it, but really it wasn't me. It was just the timing of how everything unfolded and making the decision in late 2006 that I'm going to leave at the beginning of 2008, you know, that was kind of it. And that was really for me. And I'm, as the time goes by, like six months passes and there's a year away, I'm like telling my friends like, Hey, I'm going to leave in a year and go travel. Every single one of my friends were like, no way. You're never going to leave. Everyone <laughs> talks about it. You're never going to, no one does it. I'm like, no, no, I'm actually leaving. And then when the time came, I was like, look, this is it. Like it's time to go. So I went into my boss's office and had a conversation with him. I was like, listen, I'm actually very happy here. I like it here. You're a great boss. This group is amazing. But I feel like I need to go and travel for a year and just understand what else is out there. And I'd love to come back if you could hold my job for me. And so he thought about it for like a day or two. And then he called me back. He's like, okay, Cal, I thought about it. Fine, go travel, go you know, do what you got to do. I've sent other people to the London office for a year and come back. I would rather take you back in a year from now than someone who I don't know fresh off the street. So I was like, great. So I left, as you mentioned, the timing was insane. I left March of 2008. Oh, right man. The crash. Yeah. And we all kind of knew there was going to be a correction, but no one knew what was going to happen at that level. And so I left and, you know, I took off and I went, I did 30, almost 30 countries in one year. And I remember very vividly, I was in Budapest, Hungary, and I was in a hostel and I'm watching TV and the only English speaking channel is CNN. And Wolf Blitzer <laughs> is like, Bear Stearns is going down. Merrill Lynch is in trouble. Lehman Brothers is done. And I'm sitting there watching this like, oh my God, like I was in their office six months ago working on with them, working on a deal with them. Like, how are they gone? And I turned to my right and there's this 19 year old British backpacker. And I turned to him and I'm like, hey, do you realize what this man is saying? 
And the 19 year old looked at me and he's kind of like, and I was like, you know what? Who cares? <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, it'll okay. figure yeah, it'll figure itself out. <laughs> well, and that's so, amazing. So did yeah. you, when you took off, uh, I don't know, what was your travel experience beforehand? And did you have like a set itinerary or were you just winging it the whole, the whole time? Yeah, I, I had traveled a little bit. I've done like Costa Rica, went to Mexico a few times, uh, a couple times Europe, but nothing nothing more than say two weeks, right? And I was embarking on a year to be away from everything <laughs> and constantly moving. And, you know, just like anything in life, it's all about balance. And so at some points throughout the trip, I had places to be in certain times. Like I knew I wanted to do running of the bulls. Okay. And so that's the, you know, second, third week in July in San Fermín. So I knew I had to be in Spain there. And then one of my colleagues, my German friend, Alex, she invited me to a wedding in Germany that was across the lake from Nerschweinstein Castle, which is the castle that Walt Disney based their logo yeah. off of. She's like, hey, my friend's getting married in August in Germany. Do you want to be my date to this wedding? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I knew I had to be there, you know, second week in August. But in between these kind of checkpoints, I would build in some flexibility, some uh, time to kind of like explore and meet people and travel with them. And I did not know how amazing it is to be on the road and how friendly people are and how when you get together with a group of travelers, you guys all want to do the same thing. So you're all out in exploration mode and you form these bonds and these amazing relationships that last a long time. Well, coming off Wall Street, I mean, you're not the typical uh, backpacker. I mean, was there a level? I mean, you have to choose what kind of level, like accommodation. Were you a, a hostel guy or were you like hotels, Airbnb? What was your level? So I could have stayed in hotels the whole time just because I had saved all my money from banking. And, and but what I realized that there's a whole circuit on the hostel circuit of travelers and there's so much there, right? Like half of the enjoyment for my trip was meeting and hanging out with people from all over the world, let alone the cities, right? So just those those connections that I made and understanding their culture, where they came from. And, you know, there's many times where I saw my me in a, a guy that's from Tokyo, you know, like my, my Cal New York was this guy. <laughs> yeah. in Tokyo, and I'm like, wow, we're so similar. We have so hey, many Japanese Cal. Yeah, exactly. And so those are so I, I did hostels for the most part. Uh, mainly for access and they already have things set up and adventures and stuff you can do. But every now and then I would get tired of the hostel circuit. So I was just checking to a hotel for a few nights, recharge, and then kind of go back. But I would say baseline for the most part was hostels with a couple of luxury hotels here and there and just a couple of hotels um, in, in, in different parts, but it was mainly hostels. But when you really, really wanted a nice hot shower, you had, <laughs> you had to go to the hotel. Yeah, I get it. So yeah. you would did like 30 countries. Uh, what were some of the highlights that really stand out to you? And were, and at any point, um, did you say, you know what, I'm going to stop at this place and, uh, you know, let the year go by. I'm going to stay. Yeah. Well, I kind of had this mission to get back. So I left New York and I went south and did South America, Machu Picchu hike. I went to Argentina, Brazil, Iguazu Falls. And then I flew to Europe for the summer and was in Europe the whole summer. And then I started kind of making my way over. So I ended up in China for a month, Japan for a month, and then went down to Australia. And then when I got back, I landed in LA. And this is the last part of my trip. I rented a car and I drove from LA back to New York. As, <laughs> and I got back exactly one year from the day that I left. So that was kind of wow. a Wow. Okay. Yeah. But some highlights. Oh, man. Literally every country was amazing. It had its own set of adventures and things that happened. 
I would say the the few countries that really blew me away were New Zealand. Very much so blew me away. I did not expect that. And I would say Japan. Right. Yeah. Did you stay in Tokyo or were you did you hit both islands? So I got really lucky with Japan and I got to see the the island, the whole country from really a local's perspective through three different ways. So the first way was after running of the bulls, I was in a hostel in Granada, Spain, and I run into this Japanese kid and he's maybe like eight, nine years younger than me. I think I was like 27 or 28 at the time. And he's traveling through Spain and his English is like, okay. And his Spanish is terrible. And so him and I, we go to lunch and we start talking and within five, 10 minutes, we're like joking around, making fun of each other. And I'm like, man, you grew up in Tokyo. Like I've lived in New York and we shared this like weird bond of like, we kind of knew each other, even though we didn't really know each other. And so we became friends and we traveled together for a couple of weeks throughout Spain. And he's like, listen, are you coming to Japan? I said, yeah, I'll be there in like eight months as I make my way over there. He's like, you should come stay with me. I'm like, oh, wow, thanks. So eventually I ended up going to Tokyo. I ended up staying with the guy for like almost two weeks. And his family was so nice and kind. And they really like took me in. And his dad was like, listen, you looked after uh, my son while we were in Spain. You spoke Spanish and you could help him get around. And, you know, you're you're a part of our family now. And I was like, wow. And the father was actually uh, high up in one of the largest advertising companies over there. So they had they had like a pretty good setup. And through this kid who I met, he grew up in like one stop away from Shibuya, which is like, oh, great. So this kid knew, knew everything. He knew all the underground, where to go. So I basically just tagged along with him. And he showed me parts of Tokyo that I never would have been able to access on my own, not speaking the language and all that. So that was kind of one section. Then I had a coworker who had a Japanese girlfriend from my banking days. And they scheduled a trip to Japan in the South. And so while I'm there, they come and I join them for 10 days. And we do a whole itinerary in the South where we visit her grandfather and her grandfather's grandfather. like owned a mountain and there was a statue of him and they had like a house in the mountain and we went fishing and meditated and it just blew me away. And then finally, one of my roommates when I was living in New York, his cousin, they're Indian, but his cousin grew up in Kobe and they still live there and they had businesses there. So then after these guys, I went and joined (laughs) him in Kobe and they showed me around for a week because they grew up in there. And so I got to see the layers that Japan has um, at such a level that, you know, you, you would never have seen if you didn't have, I didn't have access, luckily have access to these people. And so I saw the culture in a way that blew me away. And I'm like, this society is the most advanced. They care about each other. You know, there's certain things that happen there that are just would blow a Westerner's mind. And actually I was so impressed that when I got back, I decided to study Japanese and Japanese is the hardest language for an English speaker to learn because of the, all of the syntax and all that. But it took me three years and eventually I became fluent. So I studied Japanese for three years after I got back from my trip because wow. I loved it much. And then I went back again and I was able to get around on my own. And that was just an amazing experience. But since then, I haven't practiced at all. So I lost you know, <laughs> oh, no. Japanese. So, so did, were you uh, fluent in Spanish before you left or did you pick it up really when you were in South America? I had a really good Spanish teacher in high school and a lot of that stuff was like buried deep down. And so when I went there after, you know, a week or two, I was able to at least, you know, order, oh, get around, understand the basics, things like that. Oh, it was like in New York, you know, you could have hung out with the Puerto Ricans. So yeah, that, that helps. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so after all, we'll get back to Japan in a minute, but uh, so after that year, 
finishes. You make it back. You do the cross country drive. You get back home. Um, now do you you have to sit there and go? Did you go back to work? Did you actually call that old boss and say, "Hey, look who's back"? Great question. I knew um, around month three that I wasn't going to go back. <laughs> there's, you know, there's something that happens to you with long-term immersive travel where you hit like the two to three month mark. And I don't mean like going somewhere and living there. I mean like moving constantly right. for three months. The point of no return. <laughs> you're either burned out or you're like, I'm going, I'm going to keep going. Yeah. You're either burned out or you start, you're like on this evolutionary kind of like process of like, wow, this is what the world's like. And you start to really relate to people and you see people for who they are. And, you know, you start to have more compassion and there's less, you know, it's kind of like, Hey, we're all in this thing together. Like everyone's just trying their best, regardless of where you come from and what you're doing. We're all just human doing human things. And something, something happened to me around month three, where I just viewed the world differently. And, you know, certain concepts like the word weird, like weird is a relative term. What's weird to us might not be weird to somebody else. And so I, I, my brain just started chemically, even the structure started changing in the way I'm viewing the world. And I just knew I couldn't go back to a job that ultimately wasn't really rewarding. It, I was doing it for the prestige of being a successful whatever um, through society and parents and all these you know indirect pressures that we have in the West that we don't even know about until you actually extract yourself and go see how other people are living. And so, yeah, when I, when I got back, I did not go back to work. I did go and meet with my boss. And at that point they had dismantled our group. Yeah, I was going to um, say, you're coming back. There's still a recession on. Yeah. <laughs> hardcore. Hardcore. But the thing was, our group was kind of like the elite group in the bank and that, you know, we worked the hardest, uh, we did the biggest deals, we made the most revenue. So he actually was able to place people in our group in other places in the bank uh, so they could still have a job. But when I came back, I just had no, I, the thought of even going back to that after seeing the things that I've seen, like, I just really, I couldn't do it. I couldn't live with myself to do that. So I said, Hey, listen, thanks. Um, you know, but I'm, he's like, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, but uh, I'll figure it out. And so I ended up living off of savings for a few years in New York, which is the, the cheapest place time. to live. Way to go. cheapest <laughs> <laughs> place to live. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and so the first year back, I started taking art science, philosophy classes for fun. I started studying Japanese. I started going to all these like events, like underground art gallery openings and just seeing a different layer to New York that I didn't get to see before because I was working so much. And I just got to live and, and, you know, a lot of people with, with money at that age, single in New York, you know, you go blow it and go do partying and drugs and whatever else. That stuff not, never really appealed to me. Um, what appealed to me was talking to my friends about their businesses and how to grow them and, and you know, learning new languages and meeting cool and interesting people that are doing cool and interesting things. And so I started doing, I started just exploring these things without any limits, which is a, such a blessing to have. And I think if any of us get an experience to do that, then you really just follow your passion. You get to find out what you actually want to do. And unfortunately, we're all under so much pressure these days to make money, survive, perform. And we, a lot of us don't get this opportunity to do this. And so I feel very blessed that even those few years that I got a chance to do that. And what I did was I gravitated towards helping my friends with their businesses. And I was doing it for fun. And then a few of them started asking me to kind of like join or take advisory shares. And I was kind of like, really? 
I was like, oh, I guess, I guess this is what I'm going to do. And so then I started my own consulting company. And for the last 13 years, I've basically been advising businesses on strategy, finance, operations, business development. And all of this came from analyzing businesses 80 hours a week for five years. You know, you eventually get, I didn't know that I had this talent, but I got good at <laughs> that. And then I was able to translate that into helping my friends with their companies. Do you, um, so you can do this from the road too, right? I mean, you do this uh, remotely around the world or, I mean, you have to stay based in New York or something? In the beginning, I I was in New York. So I started in New York and I was there for another four years. And just during that time around 2010, 2011, the New York tech ecosystem started growing and more companies started coming there and more venture capital started happening there. So I, there was a lot of activity and I was able, like, I was kind of right in the middle of it. And I rode that that wave up and was meeting a ton of people, networking, connecting people, helping people without really even thinking of any anything in return. Like I was literally just out there, what I call um, good karma business meetings. I would go, I would listen to the entrepreneur, I would listen to their idea and I would give feedback and advice and then connect them with someone in my network who could potentially help them. And then I kind of let them go and never really followed up like, oh, we should work together. I didn't do any of that. All of it was organic. And I must have had, you know, over 350 of these types of meetings in the first two years alone. Wow. Because of that, I then was getting referrals from all these people. And I, I never like sat down and strategized that this should be the way to do it. I was just being very genuine and authentic, sharing my story and telling them how I could potentially help based on what they're doing. And the things that made sense, we would work together and the things that didn't, that was okay too. We always left on a good note and I always gave value. And that was the foundation of the consulting company was I was getting referrals after those couple of years of, oh, you should meet Cal, you should work with him. And then, so that happened in New York. And then I ended up um, on a crazy story, moving to LA for a winter where my friend subletted me her apartment that was directly on the boardwalk in Venice Beach. And it was always a dream of mine to live in Venice. So I'm like, hey, I'll come live there for the winter if your apartment's available. And then I'll just come back to New York after. And this is where, you know, the flexibility of what you're talking about comes into play. So I went to LA for the winter and I'm there and I love it. And uh, she's like, hey, I got a job in New York and I'm actually moving to New York. So my apartment's free. And I'm like, I'll take over the sublet. And so for two years, I would live in LA most of the year in that apartment on the boardwalk. And then summertime, I would come back to New York and I would live here for the summer. Here's New York. I'm currently there right now traveling. I would live in New York for the summer and I was kind of bi-coastal for two years. So I was like working with clients here and I was like starting to seed everything in LA. And right. what I saw in LA was the same thing in New York. The tech ecosystem was just starting to get going. And I was like, hey, uh, I've seen this story before. And so yeah, Silicon Beach now. You were Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, that, and then I was in LA for seven years before moving to Bali three years ago. But it okay. is... It is it is a business you can do from the road, but really it's better to be there in person with with the yeah. entrepreneurs so that you can work hand in hand with them. So um, before we get off of uh, Japan, I want you to give us since you spent so much time there. Uh, everybody knows Tokyo, Osaka, and Kyoto places to see. What's a place that you know needs some love that you could uh, tell us about that maybe off the beaten path that that you didn't know about before you got there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That would definitely be a place called Takamatsu, which is in the south. And this is where my friend's grandfather lived and their lineage was all there. And we went, and like I said, there was a mountain there and we went fishing and we went, and we actually saw all of the grave sites that were really beautiful with the stone and the writing. 
And the grandfather's like, yep, like here's my grandfather. Here's my father. And you can see where everyone's buried. He's like, there's my plot. There's my wife's plot next to me. And you can just the way they even view death, you know, it's not uh, taboo as it is over here, at least the way he was explaining it to me. And it was just very amazing. And it's that's the local part of Japan where you go to places like that, that don't really have a huge infrastructure for tourists. And you kind of go, go to places like that and really get to see what it's like. Go to a park, go to a park in a small town in Japan. That's what yeah. Japanese life is like in that, in those areas. Yeah. The, the, only- only the, yeah the toughest part is, you know, once you get out of the big cities, uh, English is a little hard to come by sometimes and, and reading things, you know, at least at least with like, you know, uh, Roman lettering. Yeah. I know what ristorante means in Italy, but those symbols it could mean anything. It could yeah. say restaurant. It could say bank. I don't know. Totally. What it is. That's yeah, the hard part. I was going to say, that's, that's the only downside of that is if you don't speak Japanese, but even more the reason to make friends with a local person and have them show you around, yeah. like what happened with me, and then you get to see the, the country from a different perspective. Yeah, that's great. So of that 30 uh, country tour, was there a place you went to that had a lot of hype and you got there and was like, man, I don't get it. Or it's not for me. Do you think it was overrated or something? I would say any of the places that, you know, you grow up learning as a kid and you kind of see on TV, like the standard tourist spots in Europe, right? Like Eiffel Tower, uh, Sistine Chapel. Now, mind you, these are amazing places. The Eiffel Tower is awesome. Sistine Chapel, beautiful work of art. But the way it's described and, and the way it's talked about, you kind of go there and it's a little bit anticlimactic. And I don't know yeah. what I was expecting, like a, a parade to come out and be like, hey, here's the Sistine Chapel. But you kind of walk in and you're like, oh, yeah, this is nice. And because you can't actually go up and look at the intricacies of what's going on, you, you don't really, you kind of take it for granted a little bit. At least I did back then yeah. when I traveled. So it's like the Mona Lisa. It's, oh, it's only this big. It's only a little tiny. <laughs> That's another one. Yeah. That's another one, the Mona Lisa. Yeah. So I would say the the typical kind of like leaning tower of Pisa, biggest disappointment in the world. Like I didn't see it. I didn't I still haven't been. I mean, listen, it's a tower and it's leaning. Great. We took, I remember we took a train there, uh, all of us from actually the hostel. We took a train there and we went to go see it. And I was like, oh, the leaning tower of Pisa is this big thing. And you go and it's just a tower that's leaning. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> yeah, and it's not, and it's a little out of the way. I mean, you got to make a special day just yeah. to do it, you know, yeah, yeah. And who who would have thought someone built a crappy building and now everyone wants to go see that thing and not, not any of the ones that are built properly? Yeah, I got bad construction by me, and no one wants to see it, no one's lining up to see it. So, it, it was there, um, any anything happened along the way, any health issues, any kind of run ins with law, any anybody, uh, bribes have to be passed? Did you have to go to a hospital anywhere? There, there was, I spent, um, two weeks in Morocco and everyone on my kind of Moroccan tour ended up getting, uh, stomach issues and I didn't, and I don't know why or what happened, but then the very last day I started feeling something. And then when I took a flight back to Spain, I was, I was, uh, not feeling well for the next few days, but luckily I had taken a pack of antibiotics with me, like a Z pack. And so I took that and, and I got better. Uh, quickly but luckily nothing nothing serious like no hospital run-ins there was people that i was hanging out with sometimes they get in an accident we had to go to the hospital but nothing really happened to me um couple of run-ins with the law but like more like misunderstandings rather than like i'm you know you're doing something bad i mean look if you're just minding your own business and you're not causing any problems there's no reason for anybody to come after you or do anything you start doing some shady things and you start to attract right. these things and so that's kind of the, the energy that you'll draw in but there was 
I do remember one time in Japan when I was walking with my buddy from Kobe and we're walking down the street and we're just walking and a cop car passes us, stops, they get out and they start walking towards us. And I'm like, whoa, that's kind of weird. And we're like walking, talking, walking, talking. All of a sudden they stop us and they start saying stuff in Japanese and they're like talking fast. And my friend speaks Japanese. And after talking to him for a few minutes, he turns to me, he's like, puts his hand on my shoulder. He's like, hey man, I'm really sorry. I got to put you through this. And I was like, what the hell? We're going to jail? Like, what, what do we do? What's going on? And he's like talking to them. There he's talking. He's like, do you have your passport? I was like, I don't have my passport. He's like, do you have any ID? I'm like, here's my license. They get my license. The Japanese guys look at it. They talk, they talk, they talk to my friend. They're talking, talking. And then finally they give me the license back and they turn around and they leave. And I was like, what the hell is that? And I turned to my friend. He's like, let's go. I'm like, wait a minute. What just happened? I thought we were going to jail. He's like, no, they just wanted to make sure that you're not overstaying your visa. I'm like, why didn't you tell me that? You're like yelling at the guy. They're yelling at you. So like, there's little moments of that, but uh, there, there was nothing, uh, thank God, that was uh, too yeah. serious. Of all the countries where that happens, you know, I the one I would fear least is Japan. One of them, you know, just like the places run so remarkably well and safe and everything like that. Yeah. It's like I wouldn't fear it as much there, but yeah. still, it's nerve wracking, you know, when you're a guy in a uniform and another country is asking you for ID. And yeah, it's yeah. nerve wracking, uh, especially when you don't speak the language. That's really tough. Um, is there uh was there a moment like it happens to every traveler where maybe you missed that bus or maybe you're the plane's delayed or maybe there's some kind of thing some bad stuff's happening you're going you know what i'm going to pack it in i'm ready to go home did, did you ever hit a wall at any point i was in brussels and i was scheduled scheduled to fly to i think paris and I'm in the Brussels airport and there's long lines everywhere. And I'm like, this is not good. And after about an hour of just waiting, it turned out all of the baggage handlers and the pilots went on strike. And so my flight was canceled. And, you know, normally in those situations, you're like, ah, crap, like this, that, you're angry, your plans are ruined. I was so calm and so chill. I had my earphones in, listening to music, everyone's stressing out. I'm like, I, I mean, I didn't have anywhere to be very helpful. Yeah. Um, part of it. I did have stuff planned, but I was like, it'll figure itself out. And then they ended up busing us to this like way out of the way hotel in the middle of nowhere in Brussels. And on the way there, there was a girl sitting next to me. So we started talking and we're like, where are you going? Where am I going? I can't believe this happened. And then next thing I know, her and I hang out for like all night, like having wine, chit-chatting, talking, getting to know each other. And it just turned out to be the best experience in the world. And then the next morning we woke up, they drove us back to the airport and I was able to get on my flight and go back. And so there were, there was moments like that of like, I guess, serendipity, you could call it. Like if I didn't, that didn't happen, I would have never had this amazing conversation with this girl. Um, and, and you just kind of, kind of roll with those things and those things are going to happen. And it's just a part of it. And to get angry at it, you're not going to solve anything, right? You just kind of have to accept the situation as is and just be flexible and know that everything is going to work out. I got to admit, and maybe you feel the same way, but I mean, of all the, I love Europe and every places I've been, but correct me if I'm wrong, Brussels, a little boring. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Ghent, I loved and, and Bruges was great, but Brussels, you know, it's yeah. fine, but I... Yeah. I, I don't know. Do you feel the same way? Is it just you me? You like waffles. It's a great yeah. place. Waffles Amazing. and fries and, uh, yeah. you know. I love fries. So. Okay. Well, then. Yeah. And you see the yeah. statue of the <laughs> little boy pissing and then you're like, eh, okay. 
That's you oh, literally what? summed up exactly what I did there. It was waffles, That's it. the statue, and then fries, and that was kind of it. Yeah. yeah, the beer is good too. The, the beer is great. Beer is I mean, look, look, we just listed four things, so it's yeah, but uh, you, you know, <laughs> but if you're gonna go, I always tell people go to. I liked Ghent and Bruges a lot, you know, so I would take that over Brussels, even though Brussels is bigger. But yeah, okay, anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, so you got back and you start this consulting company. So you do that and you're bi-coastal, you're going from LA to New York and back again. Did you travel internationally while you're doing all this? I mean, did you or did you stop cold turkey and just do, you know, bi-coastal? For the most part, it was LA, New York. You know, after you do a year of nonstop travel, <laughs> you know, almost 30 countries, you kind of just don't want to go anywhere anymore, you know. And really it's not the traveling part or any of that. It's I didn't realize how taxing it is to do logistical things like nonstop. Like literally you have to think about where you're going to sleep every night. And so it's yeah, every that two gets weeks, tiring. Yeah. You're planning ahead flights and all that stuff. And it, it, after a year of that, it gets, it gets tiring. So it was mostly New York, LA. However, you know, I was still taking trips. Like I got invited to a friend's wedding in India, right? It was a five day long affair. And so <laughs> I go all the way over to India and I actually, before the wedding, I go to Rishikesh, which is the spiritual center. And I stayed at an ashram for a week. And then literally the very next day I leave and I go to this like insane five day crazy wedding. So I went from like calm Zen monastery life <laughs> to like crazy party for five days, nonstop, one extreme to the other. And then I also went uh, with some friends, actually the friend that came to Japan, whose grandfather uh, took us through the South. I went to South Africa with them and we did a safari. So I was still traveling, but not like extensive travel. It was more just like one-off trips as they came up. Mm -hmm. Was this the, um, was this the Beatles old place in Rishikesh where they went? No, I, it wasn't that place. It was just, uh, <laughs> there's a ton of places up there that, and it, Rishikesh is amazing. I have to go back now. It's been, you know, a long time since I've been there. So five day uh, wedding was it back in uh, was it in uh, Mumbai or was it in New Delhi or some other place? Yeah, it was it was in Delhi. It was at one of the top you know hotels there. And I've never I, I've been to a bunch of Indian weddings actually, but I've never been in one in India. And it really hit me when I got to Delhi and the first night out, a few of us had gotten there early. Now, mind you, this is a five six hundred person Indian wedding, and a few <laughs> of our other friends had gotten there early. And we go out for the night and we go out to a bar and we have some drinks or whatever. And we're taking a taxi home. Now we're on the highway driving back to the hotel. I look to my left and I see an elephant going down the highway. And I'm like, holy crap. Like <laughs> what the hell is an elephant doing next to us? Like imagine you're in taxi, you look over and there's just an elephant trotting in the left lane. And so then I was like, oh, okay. I'm, I get it now. This is <laughs> a different situation over here. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, it's like I wasn't prepared and I had been around the world a bit, but my plane landed. I did three weeks in India. And when my plane landed, I uh, I do what I normally do if I'm trying to get back on schedule. It was daytime still. So I just threw everything in my hotel room. I'm, I'm going to take a walk, take a walk in the neighborhood. And I lasted about 15 minutes before it was just too much. I did, It was just sensory overload. Just the noise, the smell, the people coming up to you. The animals walking around, you know, in the roads, cows in the middle of the road, like, you know, camels 
uh, pulling carts, uh, the honking, the yeah. noise, that the it was just so intense. And I was just like, okay, I'm, I ran back to the hotel. Yeah. And I was like, and I shut the door. And I was just like, what was that? <laughs> it, I mean, it was it was a lot. It, it takes it takes a while to get used to it. Yeah, it's a beautiful symphony of chaos. And yeah. if you're not used to it, yeah, you got to slowly like you know. And you didn't get sick there. I did. That's the one place that took me down. Uh, I did not get sick there. I think mainly because I was eating like vegetarian ashram food. And then I went to the hotel and for the most part, the hotels are, you know, they're catered more towards international travelers as well. So I don't, I I, I might, I might've gotten a little bit sick, but it wasn't anything that like put me down. Cool. Yeah. Lucky. So, um, then you're doing this, you come back, you're doing this business and when did, uh, Bali come about and what happened and tell me the story about that. Yeah. So, I mean, look, four years ago, if you would have told me, hey, you're going to be living in Bali, I'd tell you you're crazy. Okay. <laughs> I had a great life in LA. As I said, I'm still living on the boardwalk in Venice Beach. I have so many friends. I'm working on with all these cool businesses, working on really amazing things. I'm getting invited to all these different, you know, interesting parties and all that. I had a great life. Pandemic hits. And I had a friend that had moved to Bali about a year before the pandemic. And this guy starts calling me and he's like, listen, I think you should come. You know, there's a lot of opportunity over here. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what are you talking about? Like, what is there to do in Bali? I'm in the middle of tech and entertainment, working on all these different things here in LA. And what am I going to do over there? Yoga teacher training? Like, there's nothing going (laughs) on in Bali. And I I had gone to Bali for New Year's a few years before. So I understood what was happening. And he's like, no, you don't understand. Like, you know, there's a lot of really cool projects here. And I met this person, that person. I'm like, so this, to this guy's credit, my friend, he calls me every day for like a month. And he's like, hey, I, there's this thing. I met that guy. Let's do this project. Let's do that. I'm like, okay, fine. I was like, I'm going to come for like six months. That's it. I'm going to come there. I'm going to work on some stuff, see what's going on. And then I'm going to come back to LA because you know my life here is great. Now, mind you, this is like four months into the pandemic, five months into the pandemic. People are washing their groceries when they come home. They're washing their packages, but no one's allowed out of the apartment. You know, luckily, like I lived in Venice, so at least I would go out on the boardwalk and skateboard. And we would, I, I got this group together of friends in Venice, and we would always just watch the sunset together. We were in our apartments the whole day. I'm like, guys, yeah. let's come out for sunset. So I started this kind of sunset crew, and it grew and grew and grew. I was up the street from you. I was watching from Tower 26 up in Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was right on sunset in the boardwalk. And so okay. that, that was our area. And um, I'm like, okay, I'll come for six months and then that's it. I'm going to come back. And so I go September, 2020, which is still pretty, you know, fresh pandemic and it's people aren't really traveling and, and, um, and he, he got me really comfortable. Like he's really the driver of why I ended up going over there. And so I go over there and after like a month, I'm like, I'm not leaving. This place is amazing. So many amazing things there, so many cool people, so many different things to do. And keeping in mind, like I lived in New York for 10 years and then I lived in LA for seven and I'm in the middle of all this stuff. And so my bar for stimulation or interesting things is pretty high. And I go there and I was blown away. Um, The different. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say the different layers that are there, you know, you have so many different types of people. There's like surfers, you know, tourists, local people, um, people that are starting businesses, entrepreneurs, digital nomads, hippies. I mean, literally everything and anything you think of is there. And 
in a lot of ways, Bali is like New York and LA and then it's like an onion and there's different layers, right? And you can go and participate in any layer of that onion that you want. And so for me, like I ended up taking, you know, hip hop dance classes and, you know, working with entrepreneurs, which is like such a random kind of, this is me. Like I like doing random stuff, but these things are available for you there if you want to do them. And then there's also like partying and this and that, and like whatever really you want is kind of there for you. And so if you go there with an open mind, the island has a way of kind of like taking you on this amazing journey. And if it wants you to stay, it'll just keep showing you cool things and you'll eventually stay. So did that being an island, I don't know what Indonesia's rules were and was it different from island to island and island because some places really shut down. I mean, the fact that you got in at all is pretty pretty impressive i mean did they they quarantine you did they like limit your because a lot of them weren't even letting you know anybody any outsiders come in how did you get in and how did you stay yeah so this is september 2020 so there was no quarantine and there was none of that they did shut the they did shut the country down so there was no they weren't giving away any visa on arrival tourism like tourism was not happening there uh, there was a, a couple of different ways if you really wanted to get in, you could and get this special visa that then had to convert to this other thing now. And I had some friends all, uh, there and they, you know, my one friend actually helped a lot and connected me to different lawyers. And I was able to get this like, you know, visa and get in. And when I got there, I'm starting to like talk to people and meet people. And they're like, oh, like, how long have you been here? I'm like, oh, I've been here two weeks. And they're like, two weeks. How did you get in? Like, well, I'm like, I don't know. I took a plane. Like, you just... <laughs> So um, when I got there, uh, Bali was a very interesting place, right? No tourists. So all the expats that live there are kind of living there, right? And so everyone kind of starts to get to know each other. You kind of go to the same villa parties. You see the same people. It's not small, but it's not like, you know, you never see the same people twice. So it's that nice mix of like right in between. And it was such a beautiful time, man. For the next like year or two, you know, you could go, you can rent amazing villas for super cheap. You can go to the best restaurants. They weren't busy, no traffic on the roads. And the people that are there are all kind of like nice to each other by de facto. Like you have to be nice to everybody because like, if you're that one guy, that's not nice, then you kind of get like, like, Oh, you're shunned. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's all, we're all on the same Island. We're not going anywhere. And you know, mind you, the Island's huge. Right. So again, there's so many different places to go, but that was kind of like the culture there. And it was really beautiful. And it's, it's never going to be like that again. It was a wrinkle in time. And there was just so many amazing things that happened there. At the same time, it's very difficult on the local people. And they struggled a lot. And the expats did what they could to kind of help support them in, in different ways. Um, but it was it was a crazy time. And now I've been there almost three years. And so that, that six months turned into three years. And so what I do is, is I live there now. And then uh, in the summertime, I, I leave for about four months. And so the I- monsoon season there? No, it's just a good, it's, it's actually a great time to be there weather-wise. Um, but for me, I just enjoy coming back to the States and I do basically LA for a month and then I come and do New York for a month and then I travel to Europe or somewhere else for one or two months. And then I kind of go back and it's a good way of kind of keeping my network fresh, um, meeting people, connecting people, exchanging knowledge and information, uh, potentially getting clients. It's all kind of like the same thing for me. Like the way I live my life is, I'm out there going to different events and meeting people and not really thinking that I'm going to get a new client, but it kind of just happens organically. And so uh, every summer is the same thing. Well, you said that, uh, you know, Bali, this is a place that, you know, its main industry is tourism. And then when tourism shuts down, a lot of these islands were really 
hurting all over the world. How did the uh, the locals get by? I know you said like expats were trying to help out, but they all kind of run a you know, different balancing act. You know, they, they know they need the tourists and they're so important for their economy, but a lot of them don't like the tourists coming. <laughs> and so it's, uh, did, did they, do you think the pandemic made them appreciate it more like tourism or some of them used that to see, okay, now that it's not as crowded, like Hawaii did this. My friend went to Kauai and um, parts of Hawaii, they saw that like, oh, this was a good break for the environment or the reef or whatever it was that it was getting too crowded. You know, it's like, we're going to reopen and when this is all done, but we're going to do it in a different way. Maybe limit, you know, certain places or park passes or whatever it was. Did you see a change in Bali before and after the pandemic? It's kind of complicated because there's so many different groups and different people went through different experiences. There was there was a couple of news reports I remember uh, reading that a lot of the the Balinese that worked in the tourism industry, not a lot of them, but like a portion of them now like went back to their village and would like pick up the farm that their family owned the land on. And so a lot of them went back to kind of the roots. And then some people just kind of stayed. And they, everyone just kind of got by, man. They 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 made it work. I don't really remember hearing any like horror stories of like people starving in the streets or anything. Right. But you know, like I I ended up meeting a guy randomly who I didn't know. He came up to me. We just started talking and became friends. And he's like, "Listen, if you have anyone that wants like has a job for me, like I can do driver, I can do security." And so like every now and then, I would just tell my friends like, "Hey, if you need a driver? Like contact this guy." Or if you're working in a van, you need security guy. And so everyone kind of like tried to help each other out. Um, it was very, very tough for the locals. And, and, but luckily it didn't last forever, right? It was like a couple of years and they started opening things up and then closing it again. So Bali went through like a lot of the same waves. Like it was pretty much open more or less for the most part when I got there. And then there was like the Delta came through or whatever those variants were yeah. when through, like they would close things at 8 PM and everyone had to wear masks. And then like a couple months later, that would go back to normal. And then for six months, it would be normal. And then it would go back again. So it kind of went through a bunch of different waves. So there's not really like one set of things that happened. It, depending on where you were and, and what you were doing, you just basically did your best to, to get by if you're a local person. So the drunk Australians are back? The, everyone's back. <laughs> They're back. <laughs> the development is back. You know, people are right. left and right, starting cafes and businesses and there's so much growth there. There was so much growth there. But isn't that the fear? I mean, I mean, you don't want it to turn into Tulum or, you know what I mean? It, it just, they overbuild places and that's, that's bad. You know, it, it, they can ruin it. You know what I mean? Is, is there that fear? This is, this is how it is, man. There's no, yeah. whether you want it to happen or not, this, this is kind of how the trajectory of all these things go, you know, like, I'm I'm sitting here in Brooklyn. This same thing happened here 15 years ago, and the same thing happened in Sweden, and and all these places all over the world. These these cycles kind of uh, come about. I guess the good part about Bali is that it's really big. Um, it's really big, and so there's still tons of you know jungle and beachfront land that's still not claimed yet. Uh, but it's it's developing really quickly, and it's kind of moving up the coast, and you can see that it originally started here in Kuta and then it went to kind yeah. of Semenyak, and then now Changu and then it started it gets, keeps kind of moving up that that corridor along the water um I lasted yeah. about a, an afternoon in Kudu and then I was like okay I gotta move but I think I stayed in Semenyak yeah and then yeah. um 
that was the next one up. And then I spent a, a couple of days in, in Ubud, Ubud. Right. Yep. And then I went to the Gili Islands. Yeah. Gili Trawangan I went to um, to do some diving. But there's so many islands in Indonesia. And it's it's kind of weird that everybody just goes to this one island of, of Bali. I mean, there's got to be some other ones that are just as beautiful and just as amazing. And I know they're harder to get to. But do you see some other islands taken off? Like, oh, man, this this could be what Bali is now in like 50 years or whatever. Yeah, you said it, man. Indonesia is absolutely beautiful. It's made up of, I think, 13, 14,000 islands or something like that. There are some magical places there. And, you know, a lot of the most beautiful natural beach and caves and all that stuff, it's all there. Yeah. So the I think the, the key to Bali is that Indonesia is a Muslim country, but Bali is a Hindu island. And they're a little bit, they, all the islands like are kind of under, they're all in, they're not kind of, they are under Indonesia, but they somewhat operate on their own a little bit, right? They still have governance and oversight, but they kind of operate in their own way. And uh, they set their own rules in some instances to some degree. And Bali has always been kind of like a tourist spot and starting, you know, 20, 30 years ago in Kuta, that was like the spot. No one really went north. There was nothing. There was just jungle. Now that you know, that evolution has just kept moving up places like Seminyak where you stayed that got really overdeveloped. So there's a ton of, you know, villas, hotels, like luxury uh, places, accommodations, restaurants, like really amazing restaurants. And that's like where you go if you want like a, you know, resort like Bali, you know, touristy kind of vacation, but all the stuff's great. And then as you kind of move up north that you go to Changdu, which is now like the cool place to be. And that got that's now way overdeveloped and there's so much going on there so the it's constantly moving around and where the cool place is is constantly going to be changing but to answer your question there are a few islands that are that are amazing that a lot of people tend to travel to komodo is one lombok is the other lombok is uh a lot there's a lot of development going on there and a lot of people think or feel or have this hypothesis that lombok is going to be the next whatever and then you also have Nusa Panita and Nusa Lombongan, which are a ferry ride away. And there's some amazing things there. So it's hard to say. It, 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 it's really hard to say. There's people that are building. Um, but, you know, you go to Lombok and it's really, uh, there's not as much infrastructure as there is in Bali. You know, you're still riding with not much out there. The island is mostly barren. Is there an airport you, you can get to? Or has everything got to go, kind of go through Bali or another place? No, there you can go. You can fly directly to these places. They do have airports. Uh, it seems that when people do go to these places for like diving and and like the things that you you were mentioning, they do tend to stop off in Bali on the way over there. But I'm like, there's so much to do just in Bali. I mean, I've been there three years, and I've only really been to like one or two other islands. I haven't even been to Lombok <laughs> myself. I haven't even had a really? chance. The island itself. There's so much to do there. There's so many waterfalls, and you know, would you uh, or have you? Or could you uh, buy a place there? I mean, are, are you an owner there or do you uh, rent or how does it work? And how easy or hard is it for a foreigner if they want to buy there? Yeah. So there's a lot of development there. Um, as a foreigner, you're not allowed to own land, but you can do a long-term lease on land. And actually, when I went over there, I learned a lot about real estate and what it's like to do real estate over there. And I got to kind of understand uh, the ropes while Corona was ha happening. And 
yeah, there's a lot of beautiful development there. You can build a house there. It's going to be on leased land. So eventually that land has to be given back or the lease extended. And so it depends on really what your appetite is for wanting to own and, and what that looks like. But look, there's good and bad and everything, right? Like you, you go there and you live and it's amazing and it's you're in nature and it's tropical, but then there's some infrastructure, uh, potential infrastructure issues that don't aren't the same as they are here in the West. Does the power go like, out a lot? What is it? Does the power go out a lot? I, I heard it used to a lot. It, it's only gone out a few times in the few years that I've been there. So that's not really an issue. Okay. The internet's really good, actually. Um, about plumbing. Uh, surprisingly, surprisingly well, because a lot of the digital nomads go and work from there. And it's, you know, it's a big hub for business. Um, but just like general things, like things you don't think about, like, you know, you walk to a, <laughs> no, toilet I'll, flushing I'll, and no, that stuff's pretty good. It's more like, like you'll walk into a villa and, you know, like the, the light to turn on the switch is on the other side. It's like, why would you put the switch when you open the door? You need to see. So you turn the light on right by where the door is, but they put the switch on the other side of the room. It's just little things like that aren't really thought through as much. Um, it doesn't really bother me, but like these are the types of things that um, are just the differences between here and there. How about getting around? I know that I remember the roads uh, could be a little little dicey and um, I know there's a bus system. But uh, how was it getting around? Like, do, do you use a car there or do you have a motorbike or how, how was your transportation? Yeah, so Bali is very much a scooter culture. Um, most everyone has a scooter, including myself. It's the best way to get around. It's the most fun way to get around. <laughs> I love the scooter life. You just jump on and you go. You don't have to worry about anything. And parking is always easy. You just park your scooter right in front of the cafe. You walk right in. Um, people have cars there and it's a little bit slower to get around. The roads aren't very like a side, there's highways, obviously they're, they're wide and amazing. And a lot of the roads are great, but once you start getting into some of the villages, the roads are not made for multiple lanes. There's like one lane and one lane. And if there's a car parked on the side, you know, you're in that lane, you got to go around and then that creates traffic and a problem. And so it's great to just be on the scooter, to be able to kind of navigate and get around all this stuff. And if, you're even a little bit comfortable on a scooter. It's it's the best form of transportation possible. Nothing beats it. No, oh, yeah. Um, so give us some spots that, you know, if we got a week and somebody yeah. tells you, Cal, I'm going there for a week. I'm going to Bali for a week. Um, where should I stay? What should I cannot leave without seeing? Yeah, so there's basically three... I would call them like villages or cities that people in the expat community frequent live in and also travel in between. So in the middle, I would say you kind of have Changu, which is where I live and where digital nomads are. There's a lot of cool cafes, bars, restaurants, uh, events, all kinds of stuff happening in Changu. A bit busy, uh, but it's kind of like the cool place to be and all like, uh, you know, the younger people that go there, they tend to end up in Changu. And then so that's kind of there. And then about an hour north, an hour scooter ride north is Ubud, which is you where you went to. And yeah. Ubud is the spiritual center of Bali. And so when people do like, you know, their eat, pray, love, they go to Ubud and, you know, you're having a career change, a breakup, a life, you know, pivot point. You go to Ubud and you get some clarity and you do some yoga. Yeah. I was, and all that stuff. yeah a, lot, a lot of white women walking around with yoga mats. Uh, I remember. 100%. So that's... <laughs> yeah. That's Ubud and Ubud's great. There's so much more than just the spirituality. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a very uh spiritual heavy kind of place. And there's and the monkeys uh, are there. 
The monkeys are there. There's a lot of really cool things to do there. There's this uh, restaurant there that's called Zest, which is one of the best restaurants in Bali. And it's kind of a hub for all of these things. So that's like a great place to go to and hang out. And then so Changu, hour north Ubud, and then an hour south of Changu is Uluwatu. And Uluwatu is in the south part of the island. And it's more laid back. It's more for surfers. It's chill. It's not as busy, although it's starting to get developed. There's cliffs. So the views from the cliffs out into the ocean are just magnificent. The beaches are much nicer in Uluwatu. The Changu beaches are not as nice. In Uluwatu, the sand is uh, looks like the sand that we're used to seeing, whereas in Changu, the sand is volcanic sand, so it's like black. Um, and so Uluwatu is where you go if you just want to like surf, hang out, you know, get some good food and just slow down a little bit. So those are the three places that I would say if you had a week, maybe do like two or three days in each. Um, Changu, I would probably spend three days and then maybe like two days Ubud and two days uh, Uluwatu, and you'll probably get a pretty good feel for what's going on. Ooh, and then nice. those are just the three main hubs, right? These are the, like every weekend I'm going to riding up to Ubud to go to an event or visit a friend. And then every few weeks I'm going to Uluwatu for the same thing. And then outside of that, you have like waterfalls and like jungle and eco resorts and everything that's spread out all over the rest of the island. You can go to the North part and take a boat out. And then the dolphins come out at like, in the morning when you're riding the boat out and they, they swim with you, there's just all kinds of stuff to do there. But the main thing is that you're surrounded in nature. The local people are super friendly. They're very happy. They're very giving. They're very kind. And there's just an energy on the island that's I've never felt anywhere else before. It's really, truly remarkable. What's the best advice can you give to people who like you tell them don't overpay for this? What's the biggest mistake tourists make? And like, well, they, is it staying in the wrong place or thinking they have to be at some like chain resort when there's so many cool local spots or something like that, or eating in the wrong places or. You know, it's, it's hard to overpay for something in Bali because everything is still so relatively cheap and affordable. The places in Changu, there's cafes constantly opening up and they're all out doing each other and they're all competing, you know, like, and these are like amazing cafes that expats have come and open. Like a, a guy from, Brussels is opening a waffle shop, you know, and an Italian guy, uh, true story, flew his Italian grandmother over from Italy and she trained the Balinese staff on how to make pasta and pizza. So, so there's there's some amazing stuff going on there. Uh, you know, it's not going to take long to find out what the top cafes are and 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 just the most amazing food from local Balinese food to these specialty cuisines that I've been talking about. But I wouldn't really say there's anything to watch out for. I think if you're going to do something like that, it's probably best to hire a driver so that you can just go around and do everything quickly. You don't need to worry about calling taxis and, right. and all that. So the best advice I can give is hire a driver for the time you're there and then just pack in a bunch of stuff and get it all done. Hire a driver and not a scooter? Well, if you're comfortable... Well, you'll scooter, have all your bags too. have all your bags and stuff. <laughs> I, I would do that. I would definitely get a scooter. I would put my yeah. backpack on and I would ride. But you know, I don't know who the audience is, so it's better. <laughs> It's better to get a driver and, and the driver, you know, local driver, they'll give you knowledge and information and they'll, they'll have the inside scoop on what to do. So they'll give you some tidbits that way as well. Oh man, that'd be great. You're really talking it up. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's, it's amazing. You got like a really unique experience there. So, I mean, what is the future looking like for you? I mean, spending more time there or more time back here or splitting it still, or maybe you start a brick and mortar business over there. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, look like, 
10 years ago, I would have had a whole five-year plan for you and laid it out with <laughs> milestones and 10-year plan and where I see myself and all that. But I've I've been through enough to realize that you can have a plan until the universe has a different plan for you. So for now, it feels good to be there. I'm growing a lot. I'm growing uh, personally, spiritually. You know, I'm learning a ton. I'm expanding like I've never expanded before. I've always been very growth oriented when I lived in New York and in LA. But when you go there, it just goes to another level. And there's all kinds of workshops and things that you can take over there. And it's just it's just everyone is more human over there, right? We forget what it's like to actually be a human being and slow down a little bit and drop in with people, you know, over here, everyone's kind of hustle and bustle, you know, and listen, I live that life and I get it. Um, but there's other ways to live. So default, I enjoy being there because of the pace of life. I'm able to kind of go internal a little bit more. I'm able to, to express and do different things there and, you know, take all these cool different workshops and then it's great to leave. You know, you can't, regardless of how good a place is and how awesome you have it, you have to leave in order to come back and appreciate it and get the perspective changed because of the way our brains work. You know, we see something over and over and over again. We use the appreciation. We lose the appreciation for that. And so that's why I leave every summer for four months and I travel and I get to see my family, my friends and miss Bali, you know? And so by the end of this trip, I'm like, ah, oh, I can't wait to go back and get back to my routine of like gym in the morning, cafe, yoga, meetings, <laughs> and, you know, live music and just kind of get back to the Bali life. No, that sounds great. Um, okay. But we're going to have to do a speed round here. Okay. Here. Okay. Um, craziest thing you ever ate or drank on the road? While traveling? Yeah. Do you ever do the insects in another uh, part of the world or they tell you, hey, I drink did, this? I would, say, I would say I was in Japan and my Japanese friend knew this crazy Australian who's been living in Japan. So we went to hang out with this guy and he took us out and he was like, hey, let's take Cal to the spot and have him eat the thing. And I'm like, I can hear you. What spot and what thing are we doing? <laughs> and so he's like, don't worry about it. Just it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And like they took me to some restaurant. They ordered some stuff. Some sushi comes out, some other stuff comes out, and then this meat comes out. And he's like, oh, you got to eat. This is great. And he's eating. He's like, try it, try it, try it. Oh. And I eat it. And I'm like, okay. I was like, that tasted different. He was like, do you want to know what that is? I was like, yeah. He's like, that was horse. I was like, oh, uh, I ate a horse. Oh, sure. no. Oh, I don't yeah. know about these days. But back then, um, that that's, that's what it was. So that's probably the weirdest slash like, <laughs> weird as a, as a relative term. But that's the most interesting thing I probably eaten while I was on the road. What's the worst tasting liquor somebody tried to have you do, like in some country? <laughs> so many. Yeah, each, I know. Each, each country has its own worst tasting liquors. Don't so they? They really do. Yeah, it's a part of the process over there. In Bali, they have this thing called Arach, A-R-A-K. Arach. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a cross between vodka and jet fuel. And so oh. get your hands on that, just be careful. <laughs> uh, are you aisle or window? um i'm aisle okay me too what's something yeah. you cannot fly without probably i would say my phone so i can listen to audiobooks podcasts and music right good answer good i was gonna say patience yeah that's that's a, probably a better one <laughs> what do you think all this travel and all these experiences you've had how has it changed you as a person and how has it changed the way you look at um people and America and how you were raised and the world in general. How has it changed you? Tremendous impact. Hard to even answer that question with words, but 
I think it goes back to it. You know, we're so quick to treat humans as objects in our way of our goals, right? And instead of actually meeting someone and acknowledging that they're just like you and they're going through ups and downs just like you, we're all here to go through all these ups and downs. This is why this is, this is the part of the game that we're all in right now. Um, I think it's really just uh, empathy. And I don't mean that in like an, in just the word empathy, like actual empathy and looking at things from other people's perspective. And when people do things, it's just the result of their background and their upbringing, and they might not know any better. And there's stuff that we do that we might not know any better. And so really it's about, like, it actually goes back to the word you said was patience, right? Um, things happen that might bother you, but really ultimately, like the truth is everyone's trying their best with what they have, what they've been given, DNA-wise, culture-wise, upbringing, childhood. And they're just walking around and they're walking examples of those things. Like they're the product of those things. And most of those things you cannot control. You cannot control your childhood. You can't control your DNA. And so, you know, you start to just see, see people and see situations in a little bit of a different way. I don't get emotionally invested in, in these bad things that happen. I'm just kind of like, listen, that's how it is. Like this person in this scenario with this background is going to behave in this way in this scenario. And so I don't really put like a, my personal, like my ego doesn't get involved in those situations where it might have before travel. So travel just taught me really to just be more human and just treat people uh, with much more compassion. And, and that, and how do you, how do you put a value on that? Right? Like that's, that's a day-to-day thing. That's a day-to-day thing that impacts your life. That's great. Well, I appreciate you doing this, Ren. It was really cool. And now, if people want to follow you, I don't know you on Instagram or give us your socials, or uh, and also people if want to yeah. get some uh, consulting, where they can find you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm on Instagram. It's just uh, my name, Cal at, at Instagram. You can find me there. Okay, great. And we'll have links to your sites and everything else. But uh, sounds good. Hey, I appreciate it, man. That's Calamir, everybody. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. See you guys. 